It's my great pleasure this afternoon to introduce our guest speaker, Professor Margaret Somerville. Margaret is the Samuel Gale Professor of Law Emerita, the Professor Emerita in the Faculty of Medicine and the Founding Director Emerita of the Centre for Medicine, Ethics and Law at McGill University, Montreal, Canada, where she taught from 1978 to 2016 when she returned here to Australia, to Sydney, to become the Professor of Bioethics in the School of Medicine at the University of Notre Dame, Australia. She's the author of several works, including The Ethical Canary, Science, Society and the Human Spirit, Death Talk, The Case Against Euthanasia and Physician-Assisted Suicide, The Ethical Imagination, Journeys of the Human Spirit, which she delivered as the nationally broadcast CBC 2006 Massey Lectures, and most recently, Bird on an Ethics Wire, Battles About Values in the Culture Wars, and has edited others as well as publishing chapters and articles in academic texts and journals and comment columns in the mainstream media, totaling many thousands. Professor Summerall consults nationally and internationally to a wide variety of bodies, including governments, NGOs, UN agencies and private corporations. She's received many honours and awards, including the Order of Australia, eight honorary doctorates and is the Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. In 2003, she was chosen by an international jury as the first recipient of the UNESCO Ivaxena Prize for Ethics in Science. And in 2013, she was rewarded the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal for services to higher education. In 2014, she received the Jean Echelin Award for Ethics in Palliative Care, sponsored by the De Verber Institute for Bioethics and Social Research. She has a distinguished academic records, uh, one of the most significant people in the field of ethics, law and medicine, not just now in Australia, but indeed in the world. And I can remember from a very long time ago when I was a little bit younger than I am now, reading distinguished articles by Margaret Somerville when she was in Canada. And it's great, Margaret, you're back with us in Australia. Ladies and gentlemen, can I introduce and make welcome our distinguished speaker, Professor Margaret Somerville. Thank you, Kevin, and it's lovely to be back, although I, I really didn't plan it that <coughs> I was going to come back into a maelstrom of, you know, the debate around euthanasia, but I guess it was meant to be that I'm here. Um, killing as kindness and fiction as fact. So what do I mean by that? I tried to decide what were the most important messages or warnings that I could give to you and what might be a rough outline of an action plan about what you can do about the situation in Victoria, which is actually more worrying than just for Victoria because a lot of people that I've spoken to since I've been back think that what happens in Victoria with respect to legalising euthanasia is going to be like a, a paradigm for the rest of the country. So there's a lot of people looking at you. My position is I think it's a really, really bad idea. And that's what I, I maybe I don't need to convince a lot of you, but about two weeks ago I addressed the uh, Australian Medical Association a Victoria branch conference, and I got shouted down by the audience. They, they wouldn't let me speak. Uh, so I'm not too confident about our doctors, or at least the ones that belong to the Victorian Medical Association. 
So here's what I think we'll do. First of all, definitions are really, really important. And a lot of people, including actually doctors, are mixed up about what is and what isn't euthanasia. Euthanasia is not refusals of treatment, including life support treatment, and it's not fully adequate pain management. It's very important to understand that. Euthanasia is an intervention with the intention of inflicting death. The best example is a lethal injection. If you want to talk about euthanasia, talk about a lethal injection. I've been living in Montreal for a very long time, and that was the first place in Canada that legalized euthanasia. The uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons put out a 26-page guideline of how to administer euthanasia. And it's not exactly simple. Most people have this idea that, you know, it's just a little injection and bang, you, you're dead. Well, in, under these guidelines, it's about a 40-minute process if it all goes according to plan. They start off with a massive dose of Valium, and it says in the guidelines so that the patient won't be anxious. Well, you're only going to get killed. You, you would hardly think you're not going to be anxious in some form or another. Then the second thing is a very large dose of sodium pentobarbital, uh, which is, it puts the person into a deep coma. And then the third injection is uh, succinylcholine or some form of muscle uh, paralyzer so that the person's heart stops beating. And all of that takes about 40 minutes. There's, there are intervals of 10 to 15 minutes between each injection. And then the guidelines go on to say, what if there are quote, complications, namely, the person doesn't die. What do you do then? And then the final section of the guidelines talks about the what to do if the doctor gets upset about having done this and looking after the doctor for post-traumatic stress disorder. So, so um, now, quite interestingly, um, the, the, I've just had a report from Canada and this was actually something I suggested in one of the newspaper articles I wrote, that if they were going to have euthanasia, and of course they have, they should have a list of doctors who would not do it and a list of doctors who would do it so that people... Because I don't want to go to a doctor that's going to give me a lethal injection. And I know a lot of other people don't want to go to a doctor like that, and some people do want a lethal injection so they can find their doctor on this list. So anyway, the government went ahead and set up this list. And uh, I'm not sure whether I'm proud of having been the first person to suggest it or not. But And what has happened is that quite a lot of the doctors on the we will do this list, just in the last few weeks, have asked that their names be withdrawn from the list. And the reason for that is that um, they carried out a case of euthanasia and then they decided, we can't do this. And so this is, this is really important because, you know, we have a saying in ethics that you ignore your feelings at your ethical peril. And, and Leon Cass, who's a wonderful doctor and ethicist, he talks about the ethical wisdom of repugnance. And we know that humans have got a natural instinct not to kill another human. 
That's why the Americans had to psychologically deprogram the soldiers that they sent to Vietnam because they knew that they would have to kill in close contact in order to protect their own lives. And, the, and I've often wondered whether the fact that they did that is one of the reasons why the Vietnam veterans have such terrible mental health problems, high levels of suicide, etc. So all of that matters. And doctor, so that's the definition of euthanasia. That's what's involved in doing it. And doctor-assisted suicide, which is more detached, is where the doctor writes a prescription intending that the person should use it to commit suicide if they decide to do that. And usually the example that's held up is Oregon. And just to back up what um, the Honourable Kevin Andrews has just told you, the pro-euthanasia people have been walking around saying, well, you know, there is no slippery slope because look at Oregon. They've kept, they had the, the act in 1996 and it hasn't gone anywhere else. Well, what I've been told turned the debate in the United Kingdom, in the British Houses of Parliament, was that as they were saying, you know, this is all okay and it won't be a slippery slope, somebody got up and said, I'd just like to inform the House that Oregon has just introduced a bill to introduce euthanasia. So it doesn't work. Once you start doing this, you can't stop where it goes. Now, a couple of clarifications. The difference between pro and anti-euthanasia is not if we die. So far, although well, there's, uh, there's some guys trying to say we won't, we won't have to die in the future, but so far, that hasn't been an option for anybody that we know of. Um, but the difference is between allowing natural death to occur and inflicting death, that is cutting life short. Now, anti-euthanasia say they are not the same, that there is a huge ethical difference between them and there ought to, we ought to maintain the legal difference between them. And the pro-euthanasia people say, no, they're exactly the same and it's only a difference in degree. And therefore, and one of the arguments is that, well, you're going to die anyway. It doesn't make any difference how you die. And what anti-euthanasia says is, yes, it makes a big difference how you die. And then another important first point is that um, respect for life, it's very important to respect every individual human life, but it's also got to be upheld in society in general. You have to have a tone of respect for life in your society. And even if you said, well, as long as a person is competent, they're an adult, they've got terrible suffering, they've given informed consent to euthanasia, and this is what pro-euthanasia argue, that does not offend respect for life, the value of respect for life, then even if you allowed that, I don't agree with that, but even if you did, you still have serious damage to upholding respect for life in society in general. And so that, that's another argument against this. I'm going like this, and do you know what I think of? Donald Trump. <laughs> Have you ever noticed? I didn't realise I did it. I always look at him and think, ah. Oh. <laughs> anyway, so now let's look at some differences between pro and anti-euthanasia proponents, because you've got to understand what the arguments are 
if you're going to oppose it, which is what I hope you're going to do. First of all, the euthanasia debate is a clash of two foundational values, important both for individuals and for society. And those two values are individual autonomy or self-determination and upholding respect for life. Now, the difference between the pro and anti-euthanasia side is they say, well, when they clash, we'll do everything, this is anti-euthanasia, we'll do everything we can to relieve suffering, but we won't kill to do that, and because we want to uphold respect for life. The pro-euthanasia say, no, it's a matter of choice and control, and we've got the right to say that we choose death. It's, it's that uh, title of the play, Whose Life Is It Anyway? It's my life. It's very me, I, individualistic. I've got the right to decide. And it reflects a difference between giving priority to the individual as the, as the single most important factor and giving priority to the common good when you can do a lot for the individual without harming the common good. So that's, that's one of the differences. A second difference is the, and it links to that priority actually, it's the focus of both the arguments. The pro-euthanasia case is strong, even exclusive focus on what's called radical or intense individualism and what I've called presentism. That's just looking at what happens in the present. And individualism is the mantra of so-called progressive values advocates. Uh, in other words, you know, we have the right to decide what happens to us and what we want to do, and very little concern for what does that mean in terms of the impact on society and our shared foundational values. Presentism looks only at the impact on the individual in the present. And you don't worry, you don't worry what the history was and what might come out of this, and you don't consider the future to any great extent. Anti-euthanasia pays much more attention to the common good. They look to the past. For example, the Hippocratic Oath, which said doctors will cure where possible, care always, and never kill, that is ignored. That's supposed to be old-fashioned. You don't worry about that. But that's two, nearly two and a half thousand years old, that oath. So one question we have to ask is, why now? Why, after two and a half thousand years of saying we shouldn't do this, do we suddenly think that this might be a good idea? And I have written a paper on this. It's called Euthanasia, Why Now? Uh, and it's about all the social factors that I think are contributing to this. If you're interested, you can look that up. But, and also, the other thing that the anti-euthanasia people talk, uh, should talk about and do talk about is not just the present, but the future. How, how do you think your great-great-grandchildren will die if we legalise euthanasia now? What sort of a society will we have left to them? Will it be a society in which reasonable people would want to live? And if you want to see a novel that describes that, it's P.D. James' The Children of Men. And there's a whole chapter in that on what's called the quietus. And quietus is Q-U-I-E-T, 
that's quiet, U-S, quiet us. And in that book, the pe people, the day they, on their 80th birthday, they are expected to use the euthanasia kit that they've been given and to exit themselves from the society. And so we do have some uh, precedents for this. Another thing that I think is very important to look at is um, in Australia it would be Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, but in Canada where I've been working on this a great deal, I have never ever met what we call in Canada a First Nations person who thought that euthanasia was a good idea. And I was sitting on a committee, actually it was nothing to do with euthanasia, it was a committee about what was Canada going to do with its used nuclear waste. And that's a very hot topic in more ways than one. Um, and uh, on this committee, we were the ethics advisory committee to the, to the nuclear waste management organisation, which was reporting directly to Parliament about what to do with this waste. And there was a man on it called George Erasmus, who was the chief of First Nations. That's all the Inuit people up in the north, in Alaska, etc. cetera, uh, all of the First Nations people, all the um, traditional tribes across uh, the country. And when it got to, and the chair asked each of us to say what, who we were, where we came from, and what was our very short take on what, how we were going to handle this issue of what to do with the nuclear waste. And George Erasmus sat there and there was sort of a silence, you know, a poignant silence. And then he said softly, if it had been left to us, we never would have had this problem because we never would have allowed nuclear power to be generated in the first place. And he said, because we would have looked back seven generations to find the wisdom of the past and we would look forward seven generations and ask, what does this mean to our descendants? And we would have said, no, it's too dangerous. We shouldn't do it. And I think that's exactly what we've got to do. We've, exactly what we've got to do, thank you, to do with euthanasia. And, you know, any time that I bring up, because, uh, you know, I get attacked over this stuff, as you can imagine. I'm, I'm the bad guy in all of this. I'm stopping the progressives from doing what they want to do. And uh, uh, I get, you know, I, sometimes I hesitate greatly about bringing up any Nazi example. But, you know, you have to look not at what happened in the Holocaust. We're not going to have another Holocaust. I hope, I'm sure, never. But you've got to go back further than that and you've got to look at the origins of what the re resulted in the Holocaust. And that what, there's an article in the October the 8th, 1933 edition of the New York Times. So it's a pretty... New York Times, even though I disagree with a lot of their policies, they're a pretty reliable source. Anyway... I, I took this article and I hesitated, 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 but then I decided to include it in my latest book, the whole article. Um, it's not very long. And what I said was that you could have put that in the Toronto Globe and Mail, which is the main national newspaper in Canada, and it would have... Uh, it would have exactly described... All you would have had to do was change the word Nazi to the current government name, and it would have described exactly what was happening in Canada. The article said that, you know, Hitler's 
Third Reich Party had introduced this legislation. Doctors were hesitant about it, but they were sure that they'd come around and welcome it. The Catholic Church was objecting. The Lutheran Church was objecting. And, they, and then at the end of the article, they said they guaranteed uh, that no uh, citizen useful to the community would be euthanized. And... Um, and I think, I think we can take that as a generalized statement that, well, nobody who doesn't want it or anybody where we don't think it's merited, it wouldn't happen. And as uh, Kevin Andrews has just told you, that is absolutely false. Once you step over the line that you must not kill each other intentionally, one exception to save innocent human life, and this is not the case in euthanasia, then you cannot control it because you've, you've authorised the fundamental basis of justification for all of the subsequent things that happen. Okay, so that's, that's what that's on about. And the other thing is... Um, I've been arguing, and I've found that the, this gets picked up if you want a, a short, pithy argument. Uh, what I say is we must kill the pain and suffering, not the person with the pain and suffering. So, now, the, the different bases of the pro- and anti-euthanasia arguments. The um, pro-euthanasia have got a generalised category which, is a, which I've called no difference. They argue there's no difference between turning off a respirator, giving adequate pain management, giving palliative care, and doing euthanasia. And one of the ways in which they promote this is that they say they try to define euthanasia, or as, and I'm using that term to include assisted suicide, they define that into the definition of palliative care. The palliative care physicians in Canada fought that tooth and nail, and they partly succeeded in keeping it out of palliative care, but not entirely. Um, so that's, that's one of the no differences. The other argument they use is th they, they talk about refusal of treatment as passive euthanasia, and then they say, well, that means we've approved of euthanasia because we agree that people have got the right to refuse treatment, including life support. Therefore, this is just active euthanasia. It's another form of the thing we've already approved, and it's just a small incremental step on a path we've already taken. They argue that the outcome is the same, that you withdraw a respirator or you give a lethal injection, You've got, a, you've got an intervention that causes death. They argue that pain management can shorten life. Badly given, that could probably be true, but it doesn't have to be true if people are properly trained and know what they're doing, which unfortunately a lot of doctors don't. They did some research in Canada and they found that veterinarians had eight times the number of hours of training in pain management in animals as doctors had for pain management in people. And somebody suggested that maybe we should get veterinarians to do euthanasia because they, they're more skilled at it, they've had more practice. Well, you know what? It wouldn't be a bad idea because if you're anti-euthanasia because that sort of thing shocks people into what you're really doing. Um, they also, there's, there's a valid use of, uh, I see Dr. Natasha Michaels in the audience here and she could tell you much more about this. 
But there's a valid distinction between palliative sedation, which is rarely used and is used only for intractable pain that can't be relieved in any other way, and where the person is brought out of the sedation from time to time and there is no intention to kill the patient. It's got a purely primary intention of relief of suffering. And what can be called terminal sedation, uh, which a good example was the Liverpool Care Pathway in England, where they authorised this uh, terminal sedation and they, they gave it to old people in nursing homes and put their beds away in a corner where nobody went and didn't go back until the person was dead. And the hospital, the homes and hospitals even got a bonus, for, a financial bonus from the NHS for the more people that got dead through Liverpool Care Pathway in their institutions. And that, that got into the House of Lords when Panorama, a, a BBC4 investigative journalism program, exposed this, and people were horrified. Now, one of the things the pro-euthanasia do is they say they're the same. And actually, in the Quebec Act that legalises euthanasia, they talk about continuous palliative sedation, which is a deliberate mixing up of the two, and what the Act says is that uh, a person who's going to consent to this has to understand that the sedation is irreversible. In other words, it is a form of slow euthanasia because it's not irreversible. You could take it away. But what they're saying is you're agreeing to have this until you die and we're not going to take it away. And that's, that causes huge confusion. The other thing that's really scary about that is you don't even have to consent to it yourself. A surrogate decision maker, the Act expressly provides that a surrogate decision maker can, can, can consent to this um, uh, terminal continuous terminal sedation. They argue that suicide is not a crime, therefore assisting it shouldn't be a crime. There's a huge realm of stuff that we need to talk about there, about prevention of suicide, giving the message that suicide's appropriate response to suffering. Uh, they've got the going-to-die-anyway response. This was in a big article in the New England Journal of Medicine by very eminent physicians. They've got the love your dog so you give him euthanasia so he doesn't suffer. Why not give your why not do the same for your mother because you love her? Well, the short answer is your mother's not a dog. <laughs> and uh, and you know, but this all ties into a whole big uh, philosophical argument of which Peter Singer, another Aussie, uh, is is a. Uh, is a, is a major proponent, and Wesley Smith is currently fighting him in North America. And Peter and I are going to do a debate here in Melbourne. I like Peter, actually. I worked with him for a while. But we disagree on absolutely everything. So, uh, uh, except, actually, except, no, that's not quite true. Uh, we both just signed um, a petition, I guess, or a letter about shutting down a freedom of speech. And, you know, Peter's strong. He's got some good points, too, so don't let's put him down. Okay? And then really important is that they do what I call euphemise euthanasia. The pro-euthanasia people did all these surveys. They found out that if you were use, let alone using the word killing, uh, if you use the word assisted suicide or euthanasia, a lot less people approved of it than if you called it doctor-assisted dying, 
Well, we all want doctor assistance when we're dying and we don't want to suffer. So again, that's this, uh, I call that euthanasia by confusion. People don't know what they're agreeing to or disagreeing with. And, and the, we know also, and there's a lot of interesting work going on in this, about what, is the, what are the mental sort of foundations of how we make decisions about what is and isn't ethical. And the experimental psychologists are doing this work. And uh, we know that, he, that our emotional responses are indications of what is ethical and what is not. And our intuitive responses, especially our moral intuition. So, for example, this wisdom of repugnance is very important. And we ignore those feelings and intuitions at our ethical peril. And, and we know that it's language that will evoke one or other of the responses. So if you euphemize and neutralize the language, you'll get a lot more people approving of this than if you talk about doctors killing people. And I've told this story many times, but I was actually met several years ago. It was actually when I came out about the... Um, they brought me out here when they passed the Northern Territory legislation. And I went to Uluru with a, a North American film crew to find out what was happening. And um, I then did a speech for the Australian Medical Association. And I was thumping on the desk and saying, we can't have doctors killing people. And Roger Hunt, who's on your Victorian committee that's looking into this... No, he's on the, I think, what is it, the AMA committee or something? Or he's also on the panel. It's a panel, the government panel. Is it the, the ministerial panel? Well, Roger Hunt, who is also a friend of mine and a rare bird in that he's a palliative care physician who approves of euthanasia. Anyway, Roger jumped up in the audience and screamed at me. He said, Margot, would you stop using that word killing? It's not doctors killing patients. And I said, well, what is it? <laughs> he, he said, well, it's V-A-E. And I said, well, what is V-A-E? And he said, voluntary active euthanasia which, of course, is another example of euphemizing. You don't even use the words. You just use three little letters. I mean, three little letters can't be too dangerous. And um, anyway, later in the speech, and I'm going to talk to you about this, I said, well, if society wants it, um, they've got to keep it out of medicine and they can't have doctors doing it. And there's a whole lot of good reasons for that. And I said, so we'd have to decide who, to, who should do it. And this was not my original idea because the, the question that was brought up in an article was that you have to work out who's trained to understand the law and apply it strictly. And the answer is lawyers. So, 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 so what we, and it's not too hard. Yeah, it's not too hard to train a group of lawyers to give some lethal injections. And, um, and so, uh, so I suggested that, that, we, that we get lawyers to do this. And uh, with that, Roger leapt up in the audience and screamed out. He said, Margot, are you crazy? He said, you'd have lawyers killing people? <laughs> <laughs> And 
And I have his permission to tell that story, I should add. So it makes a difference, yeah, and the language makes a difference. And who does? Recently, I thought I was going to be struck off the bar. In, I, was, I was registered as a member of the bar in Quebec, which you've got to behave properly towards courts, or you get stru struck off for bringing the courts into disrepute. And nine judges of the, high, of the Supreme Court of Canada, which is the same as the High Court of Australia, unanimously and as the court, which is meant to say this is the, one of the most important judgments we've ever made. It's a very rare mechanism. They unanimously approved legalizing assisted suicide and euthanasia. And under the ethical principle that you shouldn't approve of anything you wouldn't do yourself, I was publicly suggesting that the nine judges of the Supreme Court of Canada should be the first people trained to do this. I don't know how they'd f feel about that. Now, the anti-euthanasia responses are that euthanasia is a seismic shift in our values and in the practice of medicine. It's not medical treatment, and that's why it should be kept out of, out of medicine. And kept out of medicine because people become frightened of doctors. We put, and we had an example of this when it was legalized in the Northern Territory, that particularly Aboriginal people are terrified. They say, you tried to wipe us out once, uh, and we're not going to have another you know, chance of this. They refused to have their kids vaccinated. There were outbreaks of infectious diseases like mumps and measles. It, and it's absolutely, it's a terrible thing. And, and also, I don't know, I'm going to get, I've been asking people to do some research on this, and I'm not familiar with exactly where the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders population stands, but I know that I have never met any First Nations person in Canada who was not appalled by this, and they argued very forcefully against it. So anyway, and we say it's different in kind, just not degree, from uh, other procedures accepted as ethical and legal. It's not medical treatment. Now, a colleague of mine who's actually coming to Sydney in uh, October, and will probably come to Melbourne to give some lectures, he and I did a, he's a physician, he and I did a paper, which is on the, you can get it on the net, uh, called Euthanasia is Not Medical Treatment. And we looked into training. We said if they want it, they should have a special group of people trained to do it. And we looked into how would you train them. He's a medical educator. And uh, anyway, what we, we look for a precedent for this. And what we used was the Hangman's Bible from the turn of the 19th to 20th century in England. And they actually had a whole training program for hangmen that you had to know how long the rope should be and how far off the ground the trap should open and uh, a whole lot of things that these people had to do. And so we, we thought this might shock people into looking at this. Uh, the other thing that you, you can think of is that any in the United States, where in some states, I think a majority still of states, there's still capital punishment. Any doctor who, is, who participates in capital punishment is expelled from the medical association. Doctors should not be killing people and they shouldn't be doing it in hospitals just the same way as they shouldn't be doing it in prison. By the way, on the prison uh, situation, uh, in Belgium, uh, yeah, it was Belgium, 
you can have euthanasia if you've got severe suffering. You don't have to be terminally ill. Same thing in the Netherlands. And one of the a prison, a man who got sent to prison for rape. I don't know if there was murder, but there was aggravated sexual assault, and he got a. I think it was a very long sentence. I'm not sure that they have lifetime sentences. Anyway, he petitioned for euthanasia, saying that being imprisoned was unbearable suffering, and they euthanized him. And the uh, the uh, Belgian people really had a fit about that. At last, there was something that they wouldn't tolerate. <laughs> and um, uh, anyway, the Attorney General immediately went into the Belgian Parliament and they passed an act saying that euthanasia would not be available to prisoners. So there's one category that's out of, out of that now. <laughs> but, you know, in California, they've just passed an assisted suicide law with a provision that if the person's unable to commit suicide, they can get uh, euthanasia. And now there's been a petition, or it's gone through actually, it's been approved. Uh, what about the people who are involuntarily committed to a mental institution because they're dangerous to themselves or others, and the danger to themselves is they want to commit suicide? Well, it's not fair that they can't get the assisted suicide that's just been passed in the California Act. So they've enacted provisions that allows a special procedure for the person to actually have access to assisted suicide when they've been put in involuntary in a hospital to protect them from suicide. So, you know, there's, there's all sorts of things around this. Um, the other thing is that what we get is um, we get suicide, contagion. Um, we know, suicide is actually the leading cause of death in young people under 35 years old. And it's considered a major public health problem. And there is an increasing rate of suicide in elderly people. And so those are two of the groups where there would be a message that, you know, suicide is a response to your, uh, an appropriate response to your suffering. There's a lot more I could say about that, that I, but I won't, okay? That's the trouble. I've researched this stuff for about 40 years and it's very hard to know what you need to be most effective in doing something about this. Now, what about the focuses of these different groups? Pro-euthanasia focuses on autonomy, suffering, kindness. They, they promote the right to choose how we die. That's autonomy. Heavy reliance on suffering and a duty to relieve it. In the original Carter case, the case that finally in the Supreme Court legalised euthanasia in Canada, the word suffer appears 232 times. And then where the argument goes, and this is what happened in Canada, it's cruel to deny assisted suicide or euthanasia and it's kind to provide it. And the morning after the Supreme Court authorised euthanasia in Canada, the whole of the front page of the Globe and Mail had a picture of one person with their back to you and the other person with their face down on that person's shoulder and a big long corridor, this misty sort of corridor behind them. And right across sort of about two-thirds of the way down, on the front page of the Globe and Mail, in big capital letters, it said a step towards kindness. 
and that's and that's where the, that's the argument. That there's a powerful argument, and you've got you've got to deal with that. The anti-euthanasia arguments are that the risks and harms outweigh any benefits. The trouble there is that you get into fiction as fact. The the pro-euthanasia people deny this, but there's good there's good solid evidence that we can use. It's this is harder to argue, especially for people who are not in medicine, that it's not the proper role of medicine to address all suffering. Because what has happened, a large proportion of the community have lost religion, they've lost any semblance of pastoral care, they're turning to doctors to help them to, you know, to do something about what you can call their existential suffering. We also know that although pro-euthanasia often says it's needed because people are in pain, when you look at the reasons people ask for euthanasia, pain is about number 14 on the list. The main reasons are a feeling of loss of control and independence, a fear of being a burden on others, and a loss of dignity, whatever that might mean. And uh, and this idea of this, ex there's no way, people have got absolutely no way to find any meaning in suffering or in living any longer. And so that's what we've got to help people with. And that's the sort of work that Dr. Michaels, who's here today, does. And euthanasia is not necessary to relieve suffering. It can be done in much more... Uh, sophisticated ways than simply a lethal injection that ends it all. And I would repeat, we've got to kill the pain and suffering, not the person with it. Now, another theory is this one, and this was powerful in the Canadian context, and this comes from a philosopher called Professor Wayne Sumner, and it's what's called the non-deprivation theory of justifying euthanasia. And put briefly, although it's much more complicated as you can imagine when it comes out of the mouth of a philosopher, um, but put briefly, what it is, is that life is only good if you're not suffering and you've got independence and you can do what you want to do. Therefore, when none of those things are true, which is true of the people who are asking for euthanasia, life is bad and in taking away life, you don't take away anything good, you just eliminate a bad. You're not depriving anything, anybody of anything that is good or is a benefit to them. Now, this is a much more sophisticated version of euthanasia's uh, justifiable if you've got a poor enough quality of life. And then... And, and another strategy, these are the strategies that are being used, is that the assumption that euthanasia will be legalised. I had a knockdown roaring fight at this AMA meeting here a couple of weeks ago because the chair would not let me talk about uh, whether euthanasia was a good or bad idea and what were the arguments about it. The assumption was made very late in the piece. I was originally asked to... Uh, join a panel that included Andrew Denton and Senator Di Natale. And I thought, oh, gosh, you know, I'm going to be mincemeat after this. Um, but uh, that actually, uh, Andrew Denton, was uh, he was fine. He was respectful. Senator Di Natale attacked me on one occasion in a very unfortunate way, I think. Um, and I've currently got the chair of the panel threatening to sue me for defamation for the article I wrote about what happened at the panel. But so anyway, you know, I mean, that's the life of an ethicist. And um, 
it's better than somebody threatening to kill you. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so um, that we, that, but what they did at the panel was they said, look, all we want to talk about are what are the conditions that should go into the regulations that will make it available. In other words, they made an assumption that uh, it was going to be legalised, even though there's not even a bill presented in Parliament yet. So I objected to that, and it was not the basis on which I accepted the invitation, but then I got shut down. The audience actually started shouting at me, no, 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 to stop me from speaking. So anyway, that's, you know, it's all experience, and you, you, see, you can know what can happen. Now, risks and harms, here we go. The, this, is the this is probably the strongest uh, argument that everybody will listen to, that if the risks and harms are, first of all, very serious and, secondly, outweigh any uh, possible benefits and, thirdly, that you can make euthanasia unnecessary because you can relieve pain and suffering in other ways than by killing the patient, then you've got a very strong case against doing this. And the big, uh, one of the big areas to focus on is elderly, vulnerable people, and that includes elderly people. Now, the Australian Law Reform Commission has just released a report. They are very concerned about abuse of elderly people in Australia. They've got no definite statistics, but they believe that between 4 and 14% of aged people in Australia are abused, whether physically, psychologically, or financially. In financial abuse, it's um, uh, usually a relative and often a child of the person who gets the person to sign a power of attorney, and then the child takes all the assets of the person and sells the house and uses the money. And uh, it's called early inheritance syndrome. Now, you combine early inheritance syndrome with the ability to say, my father would like a lethal injection, and I think you've got a really a total powder keg. It is a lethal combination. People with disabilities, uh, that's a big area. Uh, mainly the people with disabilities in Canada objected to this. They said it denigrates their life, that their life's not worth living, that they're not worth anything. There is a stream in the disability community that would like to have it available. They talk about empowerment. Um, anyway, in, if you're interested in that particular area, there's a wonderful woman in Canada. She herself is a seriously disabled woman since birth. And her name is Professor Catherine Frazee, F-R-A-Z-E-E. -E. And she got a big mob of us together for what we, that was called the Vulnerable Persons Standard, the VPS, Vulnerable Persons Standard, and they wrote out some very strong conditions. I mean, we were at the stage where it was not a question of could we stop euthanasia being legalised. It had been legalised and we had to do the best we could to contain the abuse of that and to contain the risks. And so that vulnerable person standard, and I've already talked to you about Aboriginal people are another vulnerable group. The other risks and harms are to the institutions of medicine and law. In a traditional society, religion 
was that because we were all more or less homogenous about religion in earlier societies because they were much smaller, much more isolated. Now we've got multiple religions in a democratic, postmodern, multi-religious, multi-ethnic, multinational societies. Uh, we've got to accommodate that. And so we still need institutions to carry the value of respect for life. And so it's been turned over to medicine and law. And law carries it by saying you must not intentionally kill. And medicine carries it by saying we will do all we can to care for you, but we will never kill you. And so what euthanasia does is it cuts across medicine and law's institutional ability to carry those values for society as a whole. In other words, it affects upholding the value of respect for life in society as a whole. Uh, it damages doctor-patient trust. You want to be sure that your doctor or nurse, Canada authorised nurses to carry out euthanasia as well. You want to be sure that that's not going to happen. Uh, the Belgium experience shows that the nurses, where nurses are not allowed to carry out euthanasia, a very well, a substantial percentage of them admitted to having done so. Very interesting, it was more common for male nurses to do it than female nurses. I have mentioned to you that it harms doctors. The uh, Dutch Medical Society is concerned about the uh, rate of mental illness in doctors who carry out euthanasia. And one, uh, one reason people promote, propose assisted suicide is they say that that's not as tough on doctors. In fact, in Oregon, less than 9% of deaths that occur by medically prescribed suicide, the doc no doctor is present. Less than 9%. So in other words... Uh, 91% of the suicides done under the Oregon law have no medical person present. And, um, you know, one of the worries that come out of that is what happened, did, did somebody in the family give the drug to the person? Uh, what happens with the leftover medications? You know, are these medications being used for other purposes? So there's all sorts of things that, um, that come into that. Okay, and I've talked to you about keeping it out of medicine and my colleague and I suggested that the new profession should be called thanatologists, <laughs> that is, dealing in death. Risks and harms to society include the trivialisation of death. Death moves from a mystery that we as humans have to cope with and, and people can find... Actually, it's, it's very interesting, and again, this is in the palliative care literature and the death and dying literature, about how surprisingly people can find an extraordinary richness in the last days of life that they haven't found before. And what we do is we deny them that opportunity, and particularly because we don't give them the support they need to find that, there is a huge shortage of palliative care, in both in all of our Western countries, including in Australia. And what we do is we, we, um, we convert death from a mystery to a problem, and then we seek a technological solution to the problem, and the technological solution is a quick, fast, lethal injection. There's damage to the ethical tone of the society. 
Um, and there, that is the, I believe the tone is, is harmed. There's damage to respect for human life in society. And then what happens is euthanasia becomes normalized. It's estimated, um, well, we know that the number of, the percentage of total deaths that are by euthanasia in the Netherlands and Belgium is increasing by 15% each year. Also, if we went with what Andrew Denton said um, for Australia, he said that it would be rare that euthanasia would be used and it would only be the same rate as uh, the Netherlands and Belgium, which is, which is, is around 4% of all deaths at the moment. So I, I, looked, I looked up the Australian statistics, and it's in that paper that's out there. I've given the statistics. Uh, that would mean that we'd have about 6,000 deaths a year in Australia, which would be like wiping out the population of lakes entrance every year. There's about, I looked for a Victorian town that had around 6,000. I was hoping it was going to be Byron Bay, but it wasn't. <laughs> they've got, they've got 9,000, so they were too many at the moment at least, but we might look to Byron Bay in the future. And um, anyway, uh, so this is, uh, there's, those are the problems. And then uh, Kevin Andrews has talked to you about the slippery slopes. Uh, the logical slippery slope is the expansion of conditions that you can have euthanasia for. Uh, the Dutch have now looked at you're over 70 and, quote, tired of life, you can have it. Uh, and now they've changed that terminology. And I believe they've got a bill in Parliament looking at this. And it's for if you feel you have a completed life, no matter, because they got into trouble for over 70, because that was age discrimination. So, so, um, so if you feel you have a completed life, you can apply for euthanasia. And, uh, and there's young people getting euthanasia in the Netherlands. Also, uh, Belgium has just amended their law to allow euthanasia for people uh, with Alzheimer's disease. And the Dutch are using it in Alzheimer's disease as well. And Canada is currently looking at whether the, re you know, the very recent legislation, it's less than 12 months old, that should be expanded to include people with uh, dementias. And so uh, the, now how do the, um, the pro-euthanasia people deal with this? Andrew Denton denies that there's any slippery slope. And the way he does it, it's very interesting, is by redefining the slippery slope. He says that if the extensions are things that people agree with, then that's acceptable because everybody agrees with it and that's not a slippery slope. Which is, not, which is not the usual definition of a slippery slope. And the practical slippery slope is non-compliance with the law. That is abuse of euthanasia when you're not doing it in accordance with the law. And again, they deny that. Now, what happened in Canada with this Carter case, the trial judge, who was very pro-euthanasia, found that there'd been no abuse in Europe. And there, were, there was a huge number of expert witnesses. Uh, there were about 38 or 39 witnesses for the pro-euthanasia experts and about 18 or 19 for the anti-euthanasia. So you had nearly 60 expert witnesses. 
And the judge found that the pro-euthanasia people had shown that there was no abuse of the law in the Netherlands or Belgium. Therefore, it was sort of straw men and hysteria on the people who were anti-euthanasia to um, propose this. Well, subsequent to the Canadian case, and the, the Supreme Court of Canada simply accepted that. We tried to get evidence in to show that that was wrong. The Supreme Court accepted one witness from Belgium who had for 10 years been on the euthanasia committee in Belgium and had supported euthanasia, who had with, uh, resigned from the committee um, because he, could, he said the abuse was too high. He couldn't any longer justify approving of euthanasia and we've managed to get affidavit evidence in from him into the Supreme Court but they refused any other evidence which actually accords with the rules of appeal that you know unless you've got new facts and these were not new facts everybody knew them at the time of the trial so uh, anyway but what then happened is there have been two cases in the Supreme Court one in Ireland and one in South Africa and the Irish one was almost identical to the Canadian one. It was a woman with multiple sclerosis. Her husband was the head of the pro-euthanasia dying with dignity in Ireland. It's a case called Fleming versus Ireland. And um, when the judges were asked to approve it because it was wrong to not allow this, it was unconstitutional, it was argued. Same arguments as Canada. The court said, let's look at what are called L-A-W-E-R, that is um, uh, life-ending acts without explicit request. And that is not legal. If you, unless you've got an explicit request in the Netherlands and Belgium, it's not legal. So the judges took the evidence that was presented in the Canadian court, took our evidence and went through it. And then they came out in their final judgment and they said we've come to the exactly opposite conclusion from the Canadian court. This evidence shows substantial abuse. So, of course, you know, it was a sort of a bit of a pyrrhic victory for us, for us who tried to get this in. Uh, and subsequently, the Supreme Court of South Africa has held it's too dangerous and you can't authorise it. So I'm hoping that the Aussies will go with the right facts and that they will understand that, you know, you can't just rely on Canada on this thing. Palliative care, absolutely essential. Um, what I would suggest to you is that we lobby for a palliative care bill to be introduced into the Victorian Parliament uh, and that we argue that whatever is decided about euthanasia should not be decided until palliative care is reasonably available to everybody who needs it. And, um, you know, that would be very hard for anti-euthanasia people to disagree with. And, in fact, they go around saying we all agree on palliative care, which is true, we do. But there's a danger in that, too, because then they say, well, you, it's just a little tiny difference that we want euthanasia in palliative care, and you're being disagreeable. I was told at the uh, Medical Association Conference that it was unhelpful not to be willing to sort of uh, be more flexible about this. Anyway, the other thing that can be argued, and this is important for the law, informed consent requires that you be offered all treatments that are reasonably indicated for the condition that you are in. And so therefore, if you have not offered 
fully adequate palliative care, you can argue there is no informed consent to euthanasia because you haven't been given the range of choice of treatments you should have been given. And so, and, and you've got to be careful about the dangers of defining palliative care uh, to include euthanasia and doctor-assisted suicide. So, in conclusion, Euthanasia is not just an incremental expansion of the current ethically and legally accepted end-of-life decisions such as the refusal of life support treatment, as pro-euthanasia advocates argue. Acting with an intention to kill is different in kind from allowing a natural death. Euthanasia is not medical treatment. Defining it as such presents serious dangers to patients, the trust-based physician-patient relationship, medicine, and society. If euthanasia is legalized by society, we must take the medical cloak off it and have some specially trained persons other than physicians mandated to administer it. We need to ask ourselves if euthanasia is permitted, how do we think our great-great-grandchildren will die? What kind of society will we have left to them? Will it be one in which no reasonable person would want to live? It seems that most politicians and many people in Western democracies, such as Australia, do not recognise the momentousness of a decision to legalise euthanasia. It's not an incremental change, but a radical and massive shift in our societies and civilizations' foundational values. A prominent Australian politician, Mr. Jeff Kennett, who argues for legalising euthanasia, captured the trivialisation of death that informs support for euthanasia in these words. He said, as far as I'm concerned, when you're past your use-by or best-before date, you should be checked out as quickly, cheaply and efficiently as possible. My response to Mr. Kennett is, we're not products to be checked out of the supermarket of life. And what would be the cumulative effect of the use of euthanasia on vulnerable people? Consider, for instance, that the Netherlands and Belgium now allow euthanasia for people with Alzheimer's disease. There was recently a study done in Canada that said that euthanasia is going to save the Canadian healthcare system over $138 million a year. Put that with increasing numbers of Alzheimer's patients. What would be the impact of that on shared values that bond us as a society and setting the ethical tone of our society? It's wisely said, we can't judge the ethical tone of a society by how it treats its strongest, most privileged, most powerful members, but by how it treats its weakest, most vulnerable and most in need. Dying people belong to that second group. I'm fervently hoping that Australia will follow the UK and reject euthanasia and assisted suicide and not follow Canada down the slippery slope it's opened up by stepping over the clear line set by the rule that we must not intentionally kill another human being the one exception being when that is the only way to save innocent human life. Thank you.